You're listening to Comedy Central. November 5th, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. First up, New Jersey Senator and candidate for President of the United States, Cory Booker is gonna be on the show tonight, everybody! Then, an actor who also wrote and directed a brand new film, Motherless Brooklyn, Edward Norton is gonna be here, everybody! Also on tonight's show, someone snitching on Donald Trump, bad guys are now saving lives, and why the Popeye sandwich is dangerous. So let's catch up on today's headlines. It's officially November, which means two things. One, Wyclef should be back soon, and also, the Popeye's chicken sandwich has returned. But if you're thinking about running out to get one, you might want to brush up on your self-defense skills. Breaking news overnight, a Maryland man was stabbed in a fight over the popular Popeye's chicken sandwich. The Popeye's was packed, you can imagine. People were standing in line, they were waiting, they were wanting the brand new Popeye's chicken sandwich. And police are saying that in that line, two men started to get into an argument. The argument escalated. It is believed it was over that chicken sandwich. And so they went outside, and that is when one of the two of them took out a knife. The other was stabbed. God damn! (laughs) People are getting stabbed over a chicken sandwich? I guess it really is healthier to be vegan. Wow! (laughs) Maybe it's just me, but I don't know why this sandwich is making people go crazy. They're fighting each other. People are fighting the employees (laughs) in the parking lots on the streets. It's getting out of control. No other chicken place is dealing with this. At Chick-fil-A, they're like, we love God. (laughs) At Popeye's, they're like, God is dead. Welcome to Thunderdome. (laughs) Meanwhile, at White Castle, they're like, you only had one stabbing? That sounds nice. (laughs) And the crazy thing to me is that someone got stabbed, but everyone else stayed in line. Yeah, they were like, wow, that's horrible. But you know what else would be horrible? Is if I didn't get my chicken sandwich. (laughs) Like, it's so popular that I wouldn't be surprised if someone in line called 911, like, I'm at Popeye's and someone just got stabbed. And the 911 operator's like, you're at Popeye's? Uh, Can you get me one of those sandwiches, please? (laughs) All right, but let's move on to today's big impeachment news. One of the big players in the Ukraine scandal is Gordon Sondland, Trump's ambassador to the EU and human squeeze toy man. <laughs> Last month, Sondland testified to Congress that he had no knowledge of a quid pro quo. But now, he's changing his tune. The latest on the impeachment showdown and a Trump-appointed U.S. envoy now revising his earlier testimony before Congress, acknowledging there was likely a quid pro quo. Gordon Sondland acknowledged he understood that American military aid to Ukraine was linked to the Ukrainians making a public statement promising to investigate corruption in their country. Wow. So this guy is just revising the testimony he gave under oath? We can't even edit out tweets, but this guy's walking into Congress just like, oh, you said quid pro quo. I thought you said squid pro quo. Quid makes so much more sense. Yeah, we totally did one of those. Yeah, yeah. 
But actually, I, I'll be honest, I feel bad for Sondland because he was the first to testify, right? And he probably thought everyone else was going to have his back and also say there was no pr- good pro quo. But then instead, everyone snitched on him. And now he's like, yeah, no, no, I'm also changing my story. <laughs> it's sort of like when you were a teenager and you told your friends, all right, remember, we tell our parents there were no, there was no liquor at this party, okay? And then you tell your parents the story and then everyone else is like, yeah, Trevor brought the liquor. And now you're like, oh, <laughs> I would like to revise my earlier testimony. <laughs> all right, and finally, if you got a library book that is overdue, you might be in bigger trouble than you think. A Michigan woman is fighting to stay out of jail over some forgotten library books. Melinda Jones says she vaguely remembers checking out the books Where the Sidewalk Ends and Night from the Charlotte Library. She says she found out about a warrant for her arrest over the overdue books when she went for a new position at work. She says she never got a notice about the fines because she moved. Now she faces a maximum penalty of 93 days in jail. Okay, okay. This story is insane. First of all, I didn't know you can check out books from the library. I thought that was just a place where people went to masturbate and print resumes. That's wild. <laughs> but for real, though, does, does this woman really need to be arrested for overdue library books? Like, who does that help, huh? If anything, it's not gonna help kids, right? When she's on an episode of Scared Straight, what is she gonna say? <laughs> Keep trying to read out there in them streets. You're gonna end up in here with me, kids. <laughs> And I'll be honest with you, you know what I think? I think these late fees only make people not want to return stuff. Yeah. I went through the same shit back in the day with Blockbuster, right? (laughs) Yeah. I rented a video and I missed the deadline by like an hour. So then they were like, oh, we're gonna charge you double. So I was like, all right, I'll screw it. I'll I'll just rent it and I'll have it another day. I'm not gonna pay it. I've already seen Passenger 57, but I'll watch Wesley Snipes again. I'll do it. Yeah. (laughs) Then I kept forgetting. And then Blockbuster sent me a notice saying that I now owed the complete price of the movie, which was like 200 bucks. And I was like, okay, screw that. Well, I'm just never coming back. (laughs) So then they suspended my account. And then they were like, we're sending the police after you. You're going to jail. And I was like, I'm not going to jail. And then Wesley Snipes went to jail, which was a plot twist that nobody saw coming. (laughs) So if you ask me, it's messed up that people can get in trouble for keeping library books too long. I mean, the only good thing about this is that that's the one crime President Trump will never be indicted for. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, Trump can't even enter a library. It's like when Satan tries to enter a church, he's just like, ah, it burns, it burns. I just wanted to masturbate, ah! (laughs) All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. (laughs) Wild fires. As the climate changes and the land becomes drier, they're becoming an even bigger problem, burning down seven million acres in the United States each year, which is terrible, because without forests, Don Jr. would have nowhere to sit. Now... (laughs) Although wildfires have recently been on the rise, these blazes have been a major issue in America for a very long time, so much so that the U.S. Forest Service even created a hero devoted to stopping the fires, Smokey Bear. You have so many reasons to protect your forest. Hey, kids, I'm Smokey Bear. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. My friends depend on me, Smokey Bee, to voice a plea. Buzz, what's up, man? You left some leaves burning out here. So the next time you're in the forest, be extra careful, okay? (laughs) If you knew it was me, would you have listened? Ah! What the f*** was that? (laughs) Forget fires, I'm never gonna be able to trust a beautiful woman ever again. (laughs) Say, Trevor, wanna go back to my place? Get the hell out of here, you bear! I'm not falling for your tricks! 
But yes, for decades, America has tried everything to prevent wildfires. And in California, they've gone way beyond talking bears. We're finally learning some good news about the wildfires in California. Most of the fires still considered active are either well under control or almost out, thanks to the thousands of firefighters who have been battling the flames alongside hundreds of inmates. You see all the, the firefighters in orange? Those are California inmates. Uh, this state has been using prisoners to fight fires since World War II. Yeah, that is really, really interesting. Inmates in California can volunteer to help put out fires that have gotten out of control. And I, I think it's great that these prisoners are willing to help in a time of need. And just for extra motivation, I think they should be allowed to bring their squad from prison to hype them up as they fight the fire, you know? <laughs> yeah, they can just be standing in the back like, yo, get his ass, T-Bone! Extinguish this bitch! Remove either oxygen, fuel, or heat! That's what you do to stop a fire! <laughs> now, you would think any prisoner volunteering for a dangerous job like this would be in it for some big reward. But it turns out that's not the case. Inmate firefighters get paid an average of $2 a day. When they're battling live fires, they earn an additional $1 per hour. Though they only earn about a dollar per hour to risk their lives, every day of work as an inmate firefighter counts as two days toward their sentence. Wait, hold up. Inmates get two days off their sentence for every day they fight the fire? That's not much of a reduction. Like, if I was an inmate, I'd just want to keep the fire going. <laughs> yeah. I'd just be out there like, oh, no! I accidentally turned my hose to the spread fire setting again. Oh, darn. And also, I, like, I don't care if they're prisoners. Getting a few dollars a day to fight a wildfire is bullshit. Now, while the prisoners are getting basically nothing for doing a dangerous job, the state of California saves an estimated $100 million a year by using inmates to fight the fires. And what's extra messed up is that despite fighting fires year after year while in prison, many of these inmates aren't allowed to use any of that firefighting experience once they've served their time. Despite their experience, an inmate firefighter may find it tough to land a full-time job after they complete their sentence. To become a firefighter, most departments require an EMT license, but EMT certifying boards have a pattern of denying applicants with a criminal history. When they leave that service, they are told they will never, ever be allowed to be a firefighter. Okay, you gotta admit, that's just shitty. You fight fires in prison, but then when you're released, you're not allowed to do it professionally? So, basically, if you're an ex-con walking around and you see a fire, what, you have to commit a crime before they'll let you help? She's like, oh, no, that orphanage is on fire. Quick, help me rob this bank! <laughs> so, the question is, should prison firefighters be allowed to enter the noble profession of firefighting after they've served their time? Well, to give us some expert perspective, we're joined by the most noble firefighter of all, <laughs> Smokey the Bear, everybody! <laughs> Smokey, where do you stand on the issue of ex-cons working as firefighters. First of all, Trevor, thanks for inviting a bear onto your show. Hashtag diversity matters. <laughs> and secondly, I believe ex-cons could make great firefighters. And I'm a living example. Wait, are, are you saying that you're an ex-convict? That's right. Shout out to my boys in Stan Quentin. Stay hard, my brothers. Wait, wait, what were you in jail for? In the 90s, I ran a Ponzi scheme that preyed on the elderly. 
but I didn't know right from wrong. I was doing a lot of blow. Damn, that is hardcore. I, I thought it would be for something like stealing honey or something. Wow, Trevor, just because I'm a bear, you assume I steal honey? Do I look like Winnie the Pooh? That's racist! Oh, no, no, I, no, I didn't, I didn't mean um, to offend you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, I forgive you. See, that's what this country's all about, giving people second chances. That's why anyone who wants to fight fires should be able to, except for people who won't put out their campfires. Those people should have their dicks ripped off by a bear. <laughs> but not me. I'm still on parole. Wow, that's uh, pretty extreme. Not as extreme as discriminating against people who've paid their debt to society. Ex-convicts should be able to train as firefighters. And that's why I'm changing my slogan to, remember, only you and cell block D can prevent forest fires. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Smokey the Bear, everyone. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest is a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. Please welcome New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Welcome back to the show. It is good to be back here. It's been a year. It has been a year, and a lot has changed in that year. You are running for president of the United States. You're in the Democratic primary. Let's start with um, something that you've managed to do that nobody else seems to have managed to do in the Democratic field, and that is everyone agreed in the beginning to be nice. Everyone said, this is a race about great ideas, and we all agree on many things, so we will be nice. And then, like, two debates in, people were like, you're a moron, and you're this, and you're that. And you've been very vocal in saying, like, no, I'm still not going to do that. How's that going for you? Um, look, <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to beat Donald Trump, who is darkness, who is hate. And one of my greatest heroes, King, said, you, you know, darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. And, and this is the mistake I think we make in this country, is to think to be tough, you've got to be mean. To think to be strong, you've got to be cruel. But we've taken on demagogues and bigots and fear mongers. Every generation of America has had that. They're, I would say the gardens of our democracy have never been free of those weeds. McCarthyism, the, the know-nothing party, which was anti-immigration, same language that Trump uses. But how did we beat them in every generation? Like, we didn't beat Bull Connor by bringing bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses and being like him. (laughs) We beat him because these artists of activism were the exact opposite. They fought his fire hoses and dogs with unarmed truth and relentless, fearsome, ferocious love and ignited the moral imagination of this country and brought more people together. But do you think that that is what is driving the populace right now, because it feels like, oh, it feels look. like sentiment right now is, is very much, we're fighting. Yeah. People must be fighting, you know? And, and as you said, the fighting must be from a negative place. Right. It's, it's not fighting for good, but rather fighting against the thing. And you said you're fighting to beat Donald Trump, but you want to do that with kindness. So what does that mean? He well, slaps you and then you hug him? How does no, that work? No, look. <laughs> First of all, most people who actually know about my career know that I beat the toughest, vicious political machine. There's an Oscar-nominated documentary you can watch on YouTube uh, called Street Fight about me coming up through the tough urban politics, death threats all my life, windows on my car smashed, phones tapped. So I've seen the toughest of politics, but we beat them and that machine not by being like the machine. 
uh, by giving an alternative and not making it about them. This campaign it shouldn't be about what we're against. It should be about what we're for. It shouldn't be about, uh, you know, even I say this to Democrats right now, this is not a moment in American history that the goal of this party is, the end goal is not to beat Republicans, it should be to unite Americans. And the way you do that is by calling to the best of who we are. Look, I, I love this, and it's not easy. My, my campaign staff told me, you know, when we started this out, the polls were, yeah, we want somebody that's gonna go out there. Right. And, and so I, I still remember running for a debate stage in Iowa, and I'm about to jump up, big guy sees me uh, uh, before the stage, I'm a big guy, and he stops me and he goes, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. <laughs> and I look at him, I don't miss a beat, and I go, dude, that's a felony. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're not gonna beat him by being like him. Right. And, and, and that doesn't mean we're weak. Look, th this is really one of those moments, I think, that this election is not a referendum on who he is, one guy in one office. It's a referendum on who we are. And this is a moment in America where people are ch fighting over chicken sandwiches. We need, <laughs> we, we need, we need a revival of civic grace. Mm -hmm. We need a more courageous empathy for each other. We need to see each other because too many of us feel left out and left be behind. Let, this, me, let me ask you then about the, about the, um, the op-ed that, that, that you penned. Um, you wrote an op-ed talking about what the Democratic Party needs in particular. And, you know, in no uncertain terms, you have basically said that the Democratic Party is a diverse party, and you feel that the Democratic leadership needs to reflect that, right? But right now, it's no secret that the people leading in the polls uh, happen to be white. And you're saying the party needs to be diverse in who it picks to lead yeah. it. But, but what does that mean? Because I'm, I'm always confused by that when, when people say it, because I go, like, diverse should mean that white could also be l in yeah. the lead if everyone is, is, is focused in the same direction. Yes. Well, let me make this point in two ways. Number one, everybody's talking about what I'm going to do when I'm president. I came to the United States Senate, fourth black person ever elected popularly to that office. And I got there, and I was shocked. I was like, wait a minute. This is the least diverse place I've ever worked. I looked at the, the, the Judiciary Committee, and I could barely find a black person. Uh, it's even on a staff position. These folks are making decisions about laws that disproportionately affect black people. So I went to Chuck Schumer with a great young senator named Brian Schatz, and we said, Chuck, uh, can you make every Democratic senator have to publish the diversity statistics on their staff? Reveal how many diverse gender and race diversity. And guess what's happened to gender and race diversity on our staffs? It's actually increased. Well, I know from Harvard case studies that diverse teams are better teams. We are at a point in America where we have to understand that any great thing we do any great thing we do is comes from broader and bolder coalitions. Mm -hmm. When we wanted to go to the moon, we had to get hidden figures uh, together with white astronauts, made us better to compete with the Russians who had put up Sputnik. And so in this presidential election, I'm tired of hearing people define electability about how can you recapture a white voter who might have voted for uh, uh, Obama Barack Obama and, and that switched over. When look at the three Midwestern states that we lost by 77,000 votes combined, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Pick any of them. Wisconsin alone, in, in, in Milwaukee, the, the African-American vote declined from 16 uh, to, uh, from 12 to 16. It went down about 70,000 votes. And we only lost that state, I think, by 10,000 votes. Right. We have to have a candidate that has an authentic connection to the full diversity and can excite and energize all of who we are, not so, just so, one faction. So what, you're, so what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that too much focus seems to be placed on one specific type of voter. People are saying, like, how do we win the white middle-class voter who voted for Trump and Obama, as opposed to saying, how do we win voters 
including black because, people who also didn't turn because out. Because I imagine you and I have heard this in the black community before. I, I live, I'm the only person in the Senate, the only person in this race that lives in an African-American urban sort of center. And when, when I hear this all the time, people getting cynical about American politics that they mm -hmm. don't feel like people are talking to them. They have a lot of presidential forums. I went to one speaking to formerly incarcerated recently, and I was very angry. I got there, usually there's 10, 15. With, with 78 candidates running for president right now, usually you can get a few there, and there's only three of us. And I said at the end of that to these formerly incarcerated people who face lifetime sentences, they're yeah. out of prison, but remember, once you have a criminal conviction for a nonviolent drug crime, for doing things that two of the last three presidents admitted to doing, it's hard to get a job. It's hard to get a loan from the bank. It's, it's hard to make it work economically. And I just said candidly to them, I said, look, the Democratic Party has been wrong on this issue. And the one thing we need from a president is somebody that people can trust is going to fight for these issues. And, and that's what I think we have to have is a, a president that, that can evoke sort of an authenticity of spirit with folks to say, OK, I, I believe that you're going to be with us on this. But then how would you explain um, you know, polling in places like uh, South Carolina, where they've polled African Americans, and then in those in that place, you know, it's Joe Biden at number one, and then yeah. like you go down the list, and it's like Elizabeth Warren, and yeah. then it's Buttigieg, and then it's Andrew Yang, and then it's you. How, yeah. how do you explain that? That's amongst African American voters. So that's black people going, no, we're going to go with Joe Biden. Yeah. Some have said, look, it's not about you, Corey. We just want to go with the person who we think can win. Right, and and that's because right now. That's the number one thing voters say they want. <laughs> like we're all making, They just want to win. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of it's fear. We don't want to mess this up. But, but we don't do things best when we do them out of fear as a country. We do them best when we do them out of faith. And so let me tell you about Obama. He was behind, at this point, this exact point back in 2007, he was 21 points behind Hillary Clinton. He was behind uh, uh, African-American voters in South Carolina just like I am. We, in fact, we have never, and you're in my lifetime in the Democratic Party, Never has someone who's been at the front and right now in, in the polls ever gone on to the White House. Oh, wow. It has always been Jimmy Carter polling about 1% now, Bill Clinton about 4%, Barack Obama 21 points behind. But ultimately what Obama challenged us for, Kennedy, I can go through the candidates, is to not make fear-based uh, uh, decisions. Let's be a country that understands that, dear God, beating Donald Trump is important, but it's the floor. It's not the ceiling. It gets us out of the valley. It doesn't get us to the mountaintop. The, 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 the leaders that we seem to understand that can ignite and energize us are not ones that are the safe bet, are the ones that call us to something higher and something greater. I, I'm running not the easy way. I'm not running because I want to punch Donald Trump in the face. Oh, we're going to beat him. And I, I look forward to being on a debate stage if he tries to invade my personal space and things like that. I will stand strong. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm a former tight end for Stanford University. I could stand strong against the guy. But I'm not running just to, just to beat Donald Trump. So then tell I'm, me about I'm running for because because in my community, right before Donald Trump was elected, we had lots of challenges in this country. Right. So then tell me about some of the policies that separate you in the field because the Democratic Party has laid out a, a wide range of policies that people agree on uh, uh, to the large to a large extent. But then the details is what right. what what well, first of all, So for instance, let's let's say like with um, with uh, Medicare for all. Yeah. Right. You you're for Medicare for all. Yes. I, I absolutely believe the best system in this country is a single payer system. Okay. But, so would that would that eliminate people's private insurance? No. So this, this is what I'm saying to you, is that on issues like this, we tear each other down over a lot of policy details. When we forget that the differences between us, because everybody on that stage, mm -hmm. every single one wants universal health coverage. Every single one. While we're competing against somebody 
who right now is working in the court system to take away the Affordable Care Act, to take right. away pre-existing conditions. Yeah, but how does the voter choose in the Democratic primary if people do not distinguish themselves with their policies? Well, like, Because I understand what you're saying yes, yes, in principle, yes. but then how does a, a Democratic voter go like, yeah, but I still want to well, vote for the person who will enact what I think is the best policy? Well, first of all, I want to caution us voters to think that we're going to make a decision by somebody checking every box on our on our on our sort of list of things that we want. Interesting. And I, and I want to be very serious about that because, look, I, I find, I, it's exciting to me. A lot of people who are my friends in politics are running. And I've learned things from other people on the stage on policy. I've got bills with a lot of folks on the stage because there's a lot of us running. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think the policy issues are important. I, I'm excited to have been the only one to put out a plan on child poverty, 170 plans. We're not talking about one of the most pressing issues in our country. I'm, ch- I'm happy that I was able to move the field even a bit on gun licensing. Those are really important. But what we've got to understand is, I don't know if you even remember what the policy differences between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were on health care. Because below all of that, those policies, to make those things even possible mm-hmm. for the next president, has to be the president that can best capture the spirit of this country and build new American coalitions to make things possible. The next president of the United States has got to be someone who can heal this country, remind us that the lines that divide us are not nearly as strong as the ties that bind us, and call us to do things that this country hasn't been able to do. Because the things we even agree on right now we agree, 90% of us, on common sense gun safety checks. The, the infrastructure of this country is falling apart. China just built 18,000 miles of high-speed rail. And the busiest rail corridor in America that goes from Boston to D.C. through this city, I'm not exaggerating, runs half an hour slower than it did in the 1960s. We, we, we agree. Well, we, steady wins the race. Okay. <laughs> we, we agree that we love our children. But why are we the only nation without... Uh, universal prenatal care. We now lead industrial nations in infant mortality, maternal mortality, complications at birth. I could go through the things that we even agree on that we're not doing well. So to me, the issue is, yeah, I want to talk. I'm a policy wonk. And I'd love on the debate stage talking about policy. But there's something beneath that. Who is the president that can create those new American coalitions? Not tear down the other side, but call to them. When I first got to the Senate, I'm not exaggerating, and I started talking about criminal justice reform, people in my own party told me you can't get a big bill passed that liberates people. They were telling me about Willie Horton, if people come out of prison. And I said, okay, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to start working, do the hard work of building coalitions across the aisle. And a few years later, the only major bipartisan bill to pass under this president uh, is the First Step Act that I led on the, on the, on the Democratic side in the Senate that's liberated thousands of people right. from prison, about 90%. Uh, of those are African-Americans. This is about who can get things done. And right now we're a country that is so gridlocked because we hate each other just because we vote differently. I'm in airports all the time and people will come up to me and say, oh, you're that politician guy. I go, yeah, he goes, what party are you? Because the next, they're gonna judge me by what I say. Everything I say after I say I'm a Democrat is gonna fall into whether they believe they should stand with me, believe Mm -hmm. what I say or not. That's not the way we get big things done. Let me tell you, the last time I was in what's called the SCIF, it's where senators go in a basement below the Senate to read confidential documents. That's when no one hangs out with Ted Cruz. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I've got some Ted Cruz stories I'll tell you after. after this. <laughs> and, and the last thing I read was a, a document, a, a series of documents about the, the Russians' interference in our election. And I, was, I, was, I, I got so angry when I read sec- one section about one of their strategies 
to destroy our democracy. Because it reminded me, I'm a history buff, of what Khrushchev said as how he was going to beat America. He said, we're not going to beat America tanks or missiles. We're going to beat them because they're going to corrupt from within. Well, you know what this, this, this document said? The Russians are trying to make us corrupt from within. They're going to try to use our social media platforms and more to just drive up the level of hatred in this country. Because they know no democracy can function unless we find a way to put more indivisible into this one nation under God. Right now, we face an existential crisis in this country where even the things we agree on, we're not moving them beyond. And meanwhile, in our parents' generations, we created these coalitions. The civil rights movement wasn't just black people marching for rights to help liberate African-Americans. Somehow these leaders were able to get suburban folks, white folks, people of the whole spectrum to become a new American consciousness to move us forward. This is a moment in America where we are at a crossroads. And it's the, 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 the choices in between Donald Trump and not Donald Trump. The choice is, are we going to continue to lead this planet on the issues that matter from climate change to setting a standard for quality of life? Or are we going to descend to be the first generation of Americans where our life expectancy is going down? Baby boomers, 90% did better economically than their parents. For millennials, it's down to 50-50. Other countries are looking at things we used to be the best at and say, ha ha, we're going beyond you on lowering the cost of college and the percentage of college graduates right. and more. So this is the choice we have. And I'm telling you, it's not all about Donald Trump. I want to beat him, defeat him. I want to replace him and get him out of office. But that's not why I'm running for president. I'm running president because I believe in us. And I believe this is the moment that we as a country have to see that we have common cause and common purpose because we certainly have common pain. The president that can get us there, that's the one that doesn't just beat Donald Trump. It's the one that gets us to the mountaintop. And that's what I believe our destiny is. Good luck to you in the rest of the race. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Cory Booker, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My next guest is an Academy Award-nominated actor who wrote, directed, produced, and stars in the new movie, Motherless Brooklyn. Seen that guy? Ben Yeah. Nice face. If? Nice yourself. You got a light? Tease. <laughs> Sorry. Jeez, forget I ask. Please welcome Edward Norton. Welcome to The Daily Show. Thank you. And congratulations on making a movie that has taken you, what, two decades <laughs> to finally put together? I, I read the book. I read the book about the time we were f putting out Fight Club. So right. 20 years ago, yeah. So you read this book when you were making Fight Club and like the story gripped you and then you were like, I'm gonna make this movie. Yes, well, it's a great, the character, um, in case you don't understand what you just saw there, it, uh, he, has, he has Tourette's syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, he's, he's a detective, but he, he trips himself up quite a lot, as right, you can right, see. Right, right, right. Um, he's not exactly the uh, the Bogart smooth 
um, smooth detective. Right, um, it's, a, it's a different type of story, and I mean, yeah. that's what made the, the, the book interesting, was it was a story of a, a PI who has Tourette's and also is OCD, but is brilliant. And as, as the readers, yes. we fall in love with this character, you know, because we, we root for the underdog, you know? And, and you've taken that story and you've turned it into a movie, but what's interesting is the book was set in, the, like, the modern-day era, yeah. like, in the 90s, and then you've taken it to the 50s. Why? Well, it has a... It, the, the, the power of the novel is just what you said. It's, it's your deep identification with this guy with his very chaotic, uh, hilarious, poignant mind. Right. And um, the plot, it, it's hard to explain. In the novel, it feels like a 50s gumshoe novel, though it's set in modern Brooklyn. Interesting. But in a way, what we wanted to do was stick to the feel of it. Right. And um, I'm a... I'm a big fan of films like um, L.A. Confidential and Chinatown and things like that. I love those films that really take you take you back into a, a, a sensual, atmospheric time where, um, you know, the magic of movies when it's that you, you go into those worlds and you go, wow, this is this is really cool. The music is great. The actors are adult and great and the dialogue is great. And and then they, they take you down into sort of a a, a, a dark uh, weave of, of the dark things that are going on in society. But, but I really liked the idea of doing that with um, a character who's a little different than your, your typical gumshoe. It, it's interesting that you say the story takes us back to a time, because although the story's set in the 50s, it feels very much applicable to what life is like today, because uh, I won't spoil anything for you, but this is basically a story about a racist landlord from New York who's destroying the world. Yes. <laughs> I... Um, and he's played by Alec Baldwin. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I want to qualify that uh, because there's no wigs involved, no small hands. Um, this, this, and it's not, it's not based on our insane clown president. Um, it, it, it's not. It's really not. There was, a, there, was a, uh, there was a true Darth Vader in New York in the 20th century named Robert Moses who... Uh, unlike uh, others, was a genius. Right. He, he was a genius, a dark genius, but, but kind of like Anakin Skywalker gone over into uh-huh, Darth Vader. Uh-huh. He, he was this, uh, this great progressive thinker who went very dark, and to a degree that people really don't understand, he ran New York City like an imperial fiefdom for nearly half a century, and everything that was done in this city that in some ways baked discrimination into the infrastructure of the city was done by him. Um, right. And so our, in the same way that, let's say, Chinatown is sort of the story of how L.A.'s original crime is that it stole all its water, what we wanted to do was sort of tell the secret history of New York in some ways. It, it really does make it a story, because on the surface, everyone would immediately jump to Trump. But as you've said, what it really does, and I guess noir is a perfect format for this, is that, like, it, it tells the understory of the ugly, ugly yeah. underbelly of New York and how people were forced to live where they were forced to live and how this shaped their lives, oftentimes in a really negative way. Yeah, and look, I think... I think that it's true. No, noir films... You know, it's not, not the dime store gumshoe novels, but real noir is... It's a great tradition in American film. It, it, it's a commentary that, in some ways, we have this narrative of our country. Mm-hmm. We're proud of it. We're invested in it. And we go along in our daily lives uh, trusting it, for the most part. Noir kind of peels the corner back and says, hey, there are things going on in the shadows that we should be concerned about. There are people who are rigging the game. And if we tolerate it too much, they're going to do us damage. And right. I, think, um, I think that remains a very 
a very healthy uh, challenge to the public narrative. And I think um, in some ways, the only tricky thing on this one was I was essentially going to people and saying, hey, it's, um, it's sort of like LA Confidential, but Rain Man is at the center of it. And uh, some, people, <laughs> some people's eyes sort of crossed. Um, but I do, think, I do think that sometimes an underdog, like someone who you root for, not, not despite their affliction, but because of it and because mm -hmm. of their unique characteristics, right. it, it engenders your empathy. And I think when you feel empathy for a character, it, it, it reminds you in some ways like what you care about the most. Uh, you want to be the kind of person who roots for Forrest Gump or you know, Rain Man. Right, right, and, and right. I think, um, and I think that in a lot of ways, to me, Motherless Brooklyn, the title of this great novel, it, it was not just applicable to the idea of people looking out for each other on a personal level, but the idea that we've, we, need to, we need to not orphan our own communities. We need to stand up as citizens and, and take care of each other. And I think uh, it's, it's a, we're in the middle of that argument again, amazingly, I think, whether we're going to confer a heroic value in America on the idea that we take care of each other or whether we're going to romance power. And I think, um, and I think that's, that's what this digs around in. I think it digs, it digs deeper, and then you enjoy a movie, but at the end of the day, you walk out and you're like, damn, I'm living in the 1950s modern day <laughs> version of a 1990s, 2017, 2019 <laughs> modern day old time movie that you've like put together. You directed, um, starred, and produced, and wrote the movie. Like, this is... I'm getting exhausted. Right. Yeah. Say it. I'm, that's, I'm, that's like really complicated like, for somebody to do. Like, did you, like, was there a point where you, like, you thought you were working with other people and then at the end of it all, you were like... <laughs> it was all me. You were like, it was all yeah, you? Yeah, it was Tyler Durden yeah, times five. Yeah, it was five. just you all over. Yeah. But that must have been a weird process. Why did you choose to, to take all of that on? Well, look, there's sometimes when a story's rattling around in your head and when, and I'm not joking, when it is a little strange, when the mashup is a little strange and, like, the music is done by Tom York and Wynton Marcellus, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Those are things I love. They don't necessarily go together, but they do. Right. You have to have conviction in a way that the mashup of things you're interested in right, right, is right. going to lead to something original and great. And um, but sometimes, uh, sometimes, you know, you don't you don't want to try to direct something through someone else's hands. But plus, honestly, like a lot of the you know, when I was 18 or 19 and Do the Right Thing came out, um, it was it was one of the seminal experiences of my young adult life in terms of. Here's this guy, Spike Lee, he's this kid, who is he? He, he wrote and produced and directed and mm -hmm, starred mm -hmm. in a movie about his neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, and it was wildly entertaining with great music and mashups of Public Enemy and jazz and all this stuff. And it was also this deep commentary on American life. It was, a, it was as trenchant and explosive uh, a forced conversation about race without easy answers. And for a lot of us, a film like that just rewrote the the you know what we were aspiring to, and right. I, I I think when you've done this long enough and you get a chance, you sometimes you want to take a swing at doing something like that, like tell a story that matters to you and tell it in an interesting way and do something uh, original. I was very inspired by Spike. I was inspired by Warren Beatty, who directed Reds, you know, and, and wrote it and produced it. And, and sometimes sometimes it's hard to explain to people why you want to do something, and when you feel that way, you just got to do it. Well, you did it, and you did it well. Thank you Thank so much you. for joining us on the show. Yeah. Congratulations. Marvelous Brooklyn is in theaters now. Edward Norton, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, 
Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.